to encourage you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark. The book of Mark. We're continuing our study in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 4, and the parables of the kingdom. Here Jesus shares three parables, parable of the lamb, parable of the seed, and the parable of the mustard seed. And these are just a few of the parables that he told. There are many more in the parallel passages in the other Gospels. In Matthew chapter 13, there's a whole series of parables related to the kingdom. Some of these are repeated there, but here in Mark chapter 4, we begin our reading in verse 21, and we will go all the way down to verse 34. Mark chapter 4, verse 21. The Scriptures read, And He was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade and then the head and then the mature grain in the head. And when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seed that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Which with many such parables he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, for he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for the reading of your word, the privilege of hearing from you, the preciousness because it brings us life, lights our path, gives us wisdom and understanding, and helps us, O oh Father, to know your mind. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to understand, open the eyes of our heart once again, to hear great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening is very important to success. 
those who don't listen, those who don't welcome feedback, those who aren't interested in hearing what other people think, are generally not going to be as successful as those who are more teachable. In a couple of articles, Peter King and Andrew Corsello, they write a couple of different articles about sports figures who are well-known. Peter King writes, quote, NFL quarterback Aaron Rodgers is one of the best pro football players of all time, but he still listens to his coaches. Quote, I love being coached, Rodgers says. I love talking football with smart coaches. I love the input, the dialogue, the conversation, unquote. His team's head coach, Mike McCarthy, added, quote, Aaron is a really good student. He wants to be coached, and he likes to be coached hard, unquote. You've probably heard the name Steph Curry, one of the best basketball players in the NBA. He has the same attitude. One of his coaches said, quote, he's the most educable player I've ever known, both in terms of his willingness to listen and in his ability to absorb and execute, unquote. Now, I'm sure many of you can think of good teachers, good coaches that you had in the past. I can think of great coaches, great teachers who would tell me what was wrong, what was right, how to improve, how to do better, how to succeed, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone who has found success has had to learn from someone, has had to listen to someone who knew more, who knew better, who knew what you ought to do. Those that don't listen are like the individual in Proverbs 12, 15, which says, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Whether you're learning music, whether you're involved in sports, whether you're learning in school or just in life, those who succeed tend to be good listeners. And the text today begins with an illustration with that very point in mind about listening carefully to the Word of God. And the idea behind that, even in the Hebrew mindset, is not merely listening, but also doing. I mean, I can, I can sit in an orchestra and listen to what the conductor says, but if I don't play along when he conducts, when he leads, if I don't listen to what he does, if I don't watch what he does, if I don't obey what he says, well, you know what, I will cause all sorts of musical chaos playing in that orchestra. And in the Hebrew mindset, the idea of listening and obeying go hand in hand, one who follows instruction. When we talk about listening, it's not just merely intellectual acquiescence, but it is in relationship to obedience. If you tell a child, for instance, don't play in the street, and they go and play in the street, you'll probably be upset. And you'll say to that child, why didn't you listen to me? You're not talking about, did the sound waves reverberate in your ears or what not, when you yell at them and you scold them and you ask them, did you hear what I said? What you really mean is what? Why didn't you obey me when I told you such and such? Why didn't you follow my directions? Why didn't you listen to me? And that's part of also why our, our high school group is going through the one another's of the New Testament. It's not that many of them haven't heard about loving one another or greeting one another or bearing one another's burdens. Our goal is not merely intellectual understanding or some theologically profound 
insight, our desire is life change. It's about practical life change because when you hear and you don't do, you haven't learned. You don't understand. And our focus has been that they might not be self-interested, self-centered, self-focused, but that they might be like Jesus, to listen and obey. Now, two weeks ago, when we came across this section of text, when we came across Mark chapter 4, we had been learning about this turning point in Jesus' ministry. Two weeks ago, we came to the parable, as you see earlier in the chapter, the parable of the soils. And in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, up in Galilee, his popularity had been growing. His popularity had been growing, booming. Thousands, tens of thousands of people have been flocking to him. They were pressing against him such that he couldn't even have a meal, and sometimes he would have to go out on a boat in order to teach the masses of people who were coming. But along with that popularity of Jesus, so did the opposition from the religious leaders, and so did Jesus' perception of them as the hardness of their heart grew against him. And in the hardness of their heart, Jesus knew the reason why they were there. Jesus knew their motivation, not only of the religious leaders, but the population and what would happen. And he knew the hearts of the people that they would not eventually follow him. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, by the time it ended, there were only a handful of people. And by the time the book of Acts were, there were only some 500 followers. Out of all of these thousands and thousands of people... And that parable that we looked at last two weeks ago, the parable of soils, is a key parable to understanding all of the other parables that are to follow. It is a key parable in order to understand everything else that is to follow. And it was a parable of the soils. Remember there was a parable of soils where uh, a sower goes out to sow some seed and some fall on the, uh, the hard path, some fall on the rocky soil. Those who fell on the rocky soil sprouted up. Those are those who have a superficial acceptance of God's word or superficial hearing of God's word. And there were those seeds that fell among the thorns and they were choked out. Those were those who were worldly individuals who loved the world more than than God, but there was the last soil, the good soil, and that was the only soil that, number one, both heard and accepted the Word of God. That is the only soil out of all of them that bore any fruit, that bore any fruit, and the fruit was exponential in its produce. I mean, a typical, typical you know, production of, of weed was, you know, six, seven, eight times. And if you had ten times, it was a great harvest. And Jesus tells them, God will produce, he will multiply it 30, 60, 100 times. That is the work of God in terms of evangelism and how you will touch other Christians as a believer, one that God draws to himself. All of the other soils do not bear fruit. All of the other soils, it does not say that they accept the word of God. And it's key to understanding the meaning of that parable if we're to understand all of the other parables to follow. In fact, Jesus says so in verse 13 of chapter 4. He says, do you not understand this parable? I mean, after he told the parable of the four soils, the disciples come to him and says, well, what does it mean? He says in verse 13, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? That is a key parable to understand. That's the first parable that occurs in Matthew chapter 13 when he begins also to tell of the parables of the kingdom. 
So it's important to understand. And the parables that come here are not just some sort of hodgepodge of, of parables, and these are all reminders, and somehow it's somehow, you know, random by, by just Mark throwing them in there. The Holy Spirit intended that these parables be told the way that they're told for a purpose. And the first parable that we look at is the parable of the lamp. And it becomes an illustration of what he has just told about the parable of four soils. So let's look at the parable of the lamp, verses 21 through 25, that we are to listen and shine for Christ. We are to listen and shine for Christ. He was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? Now, back in those days, it was very common to have these little terracotta, you know, lamps. You put a little oil in there. It'll have a little, perhaps a little spout where you put a little wick in there, or maybe it would be a little, uh, a little uh, lamp. You could hold the uh, oil, and, and what you would do is you would take that, and you'd either put it on a lampstand. Sometimes the lampstand would be, you know, on the floor. Sometimes they would have in their houses these little ledges that they would be able to put a lamp on so that it would shine and illuminate the room. That's what it would be. The very purpose of the lamp was to give light. This is, a, this is an axiom, a well-known saying or, or obvious, obvious truth. Now, it's here, it says it's meant to be put, not meant to be put under a basket. That was a basket that you would use to put wheat in. Uh, that's, that's the basket that you would put wheat in. I mean, you wouldn't take your, your basket that is half full of wheat, of the food that you would be eating that week or the next couple of weeks, you'd dump that out and put it on top of a lamp. No one would do that, nor would you put it underneath a bed. Now, this probably refers uh, maybe to a Roman bed. The Roman beds were, were those beds that were put up off the ground, sort of like what you think of our beds today. But the beds back in those days... In Jewish minds, it would be this mat that you'd roll up and put in a corner. If you put a lamp underneath something like that, you'd extinguish the flame. There would be no light because you would just snuff it out, like using a blanket and putting over some sort of fire. You'd snuff out the light. This is an axiom or a self-evident saying. No one would do something like this, and the meaning is very, very simple. You and I are to be a light to the world, and it's an illustration of the good soil. Those that bear fruit and are part of the good soil are going to be people who will shine evangelistically. That's why it says, For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. In other words, there's no such thing as a fire that gives off no light. There is no such thing as lighting a candle and it gives off black light. There is no such thing as that. Nothing that is hidden that will not be revealed. It's going to come out. You're going to shine. You're if a person who is a good soil person, a person who is genuinely saved, a person who comes to know Christ. What does God do in their life? He produces a massive amount of fruit, 30, 60, 100. Jesus doesn't say, well, you know what? The person in the good soil, they're going to grow up, and they're not going to have any fruit for years and years and years and years and years. And then what happens is that maybe they'll have one little plum or two apples 
or no. What God does is he produces an exponential amount of fruit. There's an impact that that person has upon those around them. That person responds. It is natural for them to respond, just like lighting a lamp. You will be somebody who will shine evangelistically. You will be somebody who desires that others come to know Christ, and you cannot hide. Now, even in that, there is our responsibility. There is our responsibility to shine, to let your light shine, it says in Matthew chapter 5. It says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, it says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It doesn't say, you know what? You could be the light of the world. It doesn't say you might be the light of the world. It says you are the light of the world. And when he says, a city that is on a hill, you cannot hide it. The good soil produces a plant that multiplies exponentially. That is the result of God working in that person's life, and they're going to be like a light that is lit. It will give off light. A fire will give off light. A city that is on a hill, you cannot hide it. This is what is hidden, and it will be revealed when one is saved, and they're going to shine for Christ. There's going to be something that people will see. You cannot keep it secret. It will come to pass that you are a believer. The manifestation of fruit in your life is going to be obvious. Now, some have looked at that passage in verse 22 and said, well, that perhaps refers to Jesus who brought in the gospel who was previously hidden but now is revealed, and that might be the case. But there's a purpose, I believe, by which this particular parable comes right after the parable of the soils. And the same is true, I believe, in Matthew when it says, you are the light of the world and you are the one who will shine. It comes after for this purpose that is characteristic. It is to be characteristic of the seed that is thrown on the good soil and bears fruit. The superficial Christian who is the one that responds with joy, the seed that is thrown on the rocky soil that springs up, but then when the withering heat of the sun, it shrinks back, that superficial Christian isn't going to be bearing any fruit. Nor is the person who is, the seed is thrown on the thorny soil, the one who is worried and choked out by the cares of this world, they're not going to bear any fruit. They don't have any light to shine. They're, they're, there's nothing that's going to be so seen in their life. Those are the worldly Christians from the thorny soil. There's no light to be shined there. Only genuine Christians, only genuine Christians, those that Jesus speaks of, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You are going to be like a city on a hill. Now, you may shine more dimly than others, but nonetheless, you can't hide it. There will be no hiding. There will be something that we'll be able to witness. Matthew 10, 32 says, this about those who are and will profess Christ, 1032, therefore anyone, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. 
If one is characterized by not confessing Christ, if one is characterized by never really seeing anything about their faith and hiding as some sort of hidden Christian or their behavior or their testimony is inconsistent with being a Christian, then the fruit of their life is obvious. You don't have a light. There is no light to shine. The believer will, will have some type of light that they will shine. And here's the warning, verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, verse 24, take care what you listen to. Jesus warns them to take care about what they listen to because often Israel failed to listen to the Word of God. In Psalm 81, 11 to 13, God said, My people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. See the coupling there? Listening and obeying. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Isaiah 30, verse 9, describes the children of Israel as a, quote, rebellious people, false sons, sons who, what, refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. Jeremiah 13, 10, God indicts Israel and says of them, wicked people who refuse to listen to my words. God says in Jeremiah 22, 21, This has been your practice from your youth, that you have not obeyed my voice. It's not merely listening for understanding. It's not as if somebody doesn't hear or even understand, but it's that they do not obey. They have not listened. And there's the danger, the warning that is here for people who continually sit underneath the Word of God, who hear week after week or Bible study after Bible study and know that they need to obey God, they know what God says, but who continually rebel against God. When God calls us to obedience, we are to obey. When God calls us to surrender our life to Him, we are to obey. When God calls us to serve Him, we are to obey. When God calls us, of course, to bear one another's burdens, when God calls us to love one another, when God calls us and commands us to do all of these things in the clear teaching of His Word, and we rebel and we rebel and rebel, that's the fruit of our life. There is no genuine fruit. There is the danger. There is the danger for those who continually hear but never obey. Now, I'm not saying at all that there aren't going to be times that we fail. We all do. We all do. Every day we fail. We fall into sin. But there are those who have the privilege of hearing God command them to do something in His Word that applies to all of us, and they continually disobey. This is very important because there are consequences. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides, verse 24. But whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. You reap what you sow. 
You know, here, this passage almost might seem a little bit like unfair or somehow inequitable, especially in our entitlement culture. Like, what? You're going to take away? It sounds like more will be given to the rich and the poor will get poorer. For his disciples, in this context, you understand, they wanted to know more. They wanted and they asked of God, and God began to cause them to have a greater understanding. And they, when we look at their testimony in their life, blossomed 30, 60, 100-fold, bearing much fruit for the kingdom of God. But there were multitudes of Galileans who had gathered thousands, tens of thousands of the crowd who were merely bandwagon fans of Jesus. They're merely there because maybe they were dragged along there. Maybe they were enthralled with the miracles of Jesus or, or they had some benefit of coming to Jesus and Jesus was a popular individual and they listened, they listened, but they didn't accept, they didn't embrace the Word of God and they lost, they lost. And this was the giving of judgment. You recall, as I mentioned last week, the things that they were given the truth that they were given, the miracles that they saw didn't convince them fully that Jesus was the Messiah. And so Jesus began to speak in parables. And parables that were given, especially in the Old Testament, were given as a judgment, were given as a judgment to the people that now things would not be given to them. Even what he has shall be taken away. So be careful. Be careful of what you listen to, and how you listen to God, because we're called to obey and to shine for Jesus. And you are a light unto the world. And that light, by the way, doesn't come from yourself. There's nothing inherent in yourself that shines. There's nothing that is good in you. You're just a, a reflection of the light of Jesus. You're just a mirror that shines the light of Christ. You know, Paul writes about how we are to shine like stars in a world that is so dark, in a dark night. And that word shine that he uses in that passage, it, it means to reflect, it means to reflect. And there is a scientific term for that. And the scientific term to reflect is the word albedo. It's a measurement. When you look at the celestial bodies, you know, the planets, they all have a reflection of the sun to a certain degree. You know, the sun shines on them. You can see them on certain nights, certain planets. You can see, obviously, the moon. They have an albedo. The planet Venus, for example, according to this article, has the highest albedo at 0.65, meaning that 65% of the light that hits Venus is reflected. And that's... that's of course, affected by atmosphere, by their distance to the sun, etc., depending on where you're at in the orbit, etc. And then there's a little Pluto, which is the, almost the planet Pluto. It has an albedo ranging from 0.49 to 0.66. Now, our moon, which is closest to us, which we can see has an albedo of 0.07. 7% of the sunlight is reflected, and yet, because it's so close to us, we're able to see. What's interesting, you see, is that the planets get closer to the sun, the greater the reflection that it is of the light that is there. 
And there's a spiritual analogy to that, that the closer we are, the more we know of God, the more we're characters conformed to God, the more we will reflect Christ in our life. It's not us. There's nothing inherent within us that makes us any good in of itself. It's only the good that God produces within us. And the closer we are to God, the closer our relationship is to the Lord, the more of Jesus we will reflect to the world. And we're called to be a light to the world. Now, the second parable, the parable of the seed, flows again from this whole series the parable of the seed of God who causes the growth. And this parable answers the question of how is the kingdom going to grow? You know, you can hear these disciples. Here they're thinking to themselves, gosh, there are four soils, and we know what that's like. We live in an agrarian culture, they might be saying to themselves, but only one of them is only going to grow, and only one of them is going to bear fruit. And this fruit, gosh, how is it going to grow if it's only one quarter of all of, all of the people that are here? Perhaps... He was saying the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night, he gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How he does not know, the soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature head of grain. The farmer does everything that he is supposed to do. You know, he sows the seed. He plows the seed underneath. He tries to create the right conditions for all of the things to happen so that it grows. And by the end of the day, he goes to sleep. And the seed grows. What happens? It's God who causes the growth. He doesn't do anything to cause the growth itself. There's a generation of life from this dry seed to a fruitful growing plant. Now, some of you probably grow vegetables, and you grow a lot of things, so you know what this is like. I, I, don't, really, I don't really grow things. I grow, I grow tomatoes. That's all I grow. I grow tomatoes in a pot. All I do is I put some soil in there, put water in there, I put my spoiled milk in there, and I put Tums in there because they like the calcium. And it grows, and it seems to like it. And whatever, I don't do anything. I, go to sleep. I don't even worry about them. The only thing sometimes I worry about is my, you know, people walk by and it's out around the front. I wonder if they'll steal my tomatoes. <laughs> but farmers today, they do everything they can and they create the environment, but they don't cause the growth. Because even as we watch the news today, we watch the news and it is God who brings about the right weather conditions. And what God sometimes does is he brings a deep freeze to parts of the country that we think, gosh, that's such a tropical climate. It's so hot down in Florida. But there might be a deep freeze and it might bring the crops to bear that they just don't produce their oranges that they ought to. Or right now in the Midwest, there are these floods that come because of all of the the, the snow that has come, the wintry weather, the melt, and there's floods. And sometimes the farmlands are contaminated because of things that have flown over. All of these things are outside of the farmer's control. And ultimately, it is God who causes the growth. It is God who causes the growth. And Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 3. If you turn with me there to 1 Corinthians 3, it's just a couple of books away. Paul mentions there, and he gives this very apt analogy of the church. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 9. Because here in the context, they were, 
they were in a dispute. The people were in a dispute. They were factions. Some were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Jesus. And Paul writes, and he says in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 9, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. That's all. We're just servants. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, I planted Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. This is the second time he repeats that. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. It's God who causes the growth. Apollos, Paul, they're one. They're just doing their job. They're sowing the seed. It's God who causes the growth. It is God who brings life to that dry, dead seed. It is God who causes people to be saved. It is God who grows the church. It is God who brings people to maturity. It is God who begins the good work in you and will bring it on to completion. It is all of God, and therefore God receives all of the glory. It doesn't matter how technologically savvy a church is. It doesn't matter how great the sound system is, nor how wonderful our worship team is, nor whatever it may be. It is God who brings about the growth in the church, and that is how churches grow. Our job is simply to be faithful, to be faithful to teach the Word of God, to be faithful to sharing about Christ, to sow the seed, but it's God who causes the growth. It's not our responsibility to save anybody. It's not our responsibility to make people grow. And this idea has plenty of implications. For example, in our friends and our family and their salvation and their spiritual growth. As much as we would want our neighbor or our family members or our loved ones or those that are close to us or people in the church to be saved, that is God's work. It is God who saves them. It is God who causes them to be more mature. As much as you would want your husband or your wife to change, they wish they wouldn't be like this or like that. It is God who works in their heart to sanctify them, to cause them to grow. Now, we, of course, we have our responsibility to share the gospel, to point people to God, to open the Word of God in our family, etc. But ultimately, it's God who works in their heart to draw them to Himself. The burden of a responsibility is upon God for the saving work. Our responsibility is simply to be faithful at sowing the seed. It has implications even in church growth and evangelism. You know, some churches, I don't believe in setting these, these numerical goals, you know, like the church is going to grow, we're going, we're going to have a goal this year to grow the church by 10% or to have X number of baptisms this year. You know, all that does is if the church does grow 10%, we pat ourselves on the back and our pride goes up to say, look at what we've done, or we say in on a shell, well, look at what God has done. We've set the goal, and God met our goal. You know, that has nothing to do with this passage. This passage says it's God who causes the growth. God may say, you know what? 
oh, it'll be 2% or it'll be 0% or it'll be negative 10% or it'll be like uh, 25%. Who knows? But that's all up to God. We present the word. We teach the word. We encourage people to obey the word. Can you imagine if, if the uh, prophet Jeremiah decided he was going to apply to be a long-term missionary of our church? And he sends in a letter, a cover letter. And his storyline would be something like this. Well, I've been on the mission field for 40 years, the prophetic ministry. People don't seem to want to listen to me. I haven't led anyone to Christ in 40 years. I haven't even been able to send up my monthly newsletter because I was beaten up and chased down. Donors don't seem to want to support me, unquote, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what a sad, sad story. Yet he was faithful in what God had called him to do. And what's interesting, even in the whole idea of missionaries and supporting missionaries, donors often want an update, and sometimes this might even be your expectation too. You get this missionary letter of somebody that you support, and many of them may feel the pressure. They may feel the pressure of putting something outstanding that God has done because in our society, in our culture, we often want to see results, the results of ministry. What are the results of my investment? That's how companies look at it today. What are the results of my investment? How many people did you reach for Christ, et cetera, et cetera? And we have these numerical standards or these ideas in our mind's eye of what it means to be. But many missionaries on the field, they have everyday lives in which they may be teaching a class, a Sunday school class, or trying to plant a church, and it's very discouraging because people don't respond. And in various parts of the world, it is extremely difficult, and people may not respond for many years. In other countries, people are very open to the gospel because God has worked in their life, and they find that there is a great interest and fruitfulness in what God is doing there. And yet, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 3 about Apollos and him? that they're one, that they're one, that they are people who are just trying to be faithful in what God has called them to do, that God has called them to be faithful in ministry. Now, Mark here says, verse 29, chapter 4, when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. You know what that says? That says that God will bring a harvest. There will be people who will be saved. And you know, when someone comes to know Jesus, when someone, an evangelist or somebody comes to share the gospel with them and they come to know Jesus, there's nothing special about that particular evangelist's methods, personality, perhaps the presentation, as long as it's clear. There's nothing special. It's because the Word of God and God's Spirit has already begun to work in the heart of that person. That that person comes after a long line, perhaps, of people who have ministered, who have shared the gospel, who have talked to that individual about Christ over time. And that person just happens to be the one who comes by during the right time of the season and gets to pick the fruit off the tree and put it into the basket. That person will be rewarded on their faithfulness the same way as the person who took time many years ago to plow the field and plant those little sapling trees. Faithfulness is what God has called us to. And this is a tremendous blessing when we read this parable because it takes away this burden of, 
oh, it's my job to save someone or trying to change someone. When it's God who causes the growth, when it's God who saves, it is God who sanctifies, it is God who brings about maturity and blesses them with fruit. We are to be faithful. We are to be faithful to let our light shine, and that's part of our responsibility. But it's God who causes the growth. Now, the next question is, what will that growth look like? What will that growth look like? In a broad picture sense, what will that growth look like in the kingdom? And that's where the parable of the mustard seed comes in. Verse 30, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? This is what Jesus says. It is like a mustard seed, which was sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Not only does God cause the growth, but the kingdom of God will grow exponentially. In the life of that believer, God will cause it to grow exponentially. God will cause his kingdom to grow exponentially. This is an encouragement to the disciples early on that time. Little would they know later on they would have to perhaps remember this and be encouraged that even in their small band of followers after Jesus passes away and dies on the cross, that small band of followers would remember the kingdom is going to grow and blossom. Now, the mustard seed here, the mustard seed, which is spoken of here, is the smallest seed in their experience and their knowledge. It's not the smallest seed that ever exists. This is not meant to be some sort of scientific statement. There are seeds that are smaller. Mustard seeds are very, very tiny, smaller than sesame seeds. And they're very small. This was just a, a statement by which they, they would be able to understand this is a tiny, tiny seed. And yet, when it is grown, it grows huge, like a tree, taller than a person, with branches that the birds can even be able to sit on. And the crux of the parable is that God, who causes the growth, will begin small and will cause an explosion of growth. We are just blessed to be a part of what God is doing when we let our light shine. It's kind of like some who, if you've ever been, been surfing, you know, I tried it once, and it's really hard. I, I just can't stand on that board too well, and, you know, it's one of the hardest things. I just remember ending up with this big rash on my chest, cause I, you know, and, and it was exhausting because I'd always fall, and i have to swim back out there, and the guy would say, well, now, here it comes, here it comes, and I'd fall off again, hurt my feet. It was just, but you see, there are these great surfers there. There are these great surfers, and you watch these videos because there they are. They're riding a small part of the wave. The wave gets bigger and bigger. Sometimes it can be tens of feet in the air, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 feet, a high wave, and they're just riding along. And there's an exhilaration that they have as they surf the wave. And they've done nothing to make that wave bigger. They've done nothing to make that wave come into shore. But they're just blessed to be able to ride the wave and so, too, when we let our light shine before men, when we are a part of what God is doing by evangelizing and sharing, the, sharing Christ, we get to see the fruit, and we are so blessed to be along for what God is doing. A tremendous encouragement. It's not our job to save people. It's not our job to force people to grow. It's our job to be faithful in dispensing the Word of God. And so, too, 
God calls us to that. And he speaks to them in many parables, it says here. Many parables, he's speaking the word so far as they were able to hear it. And he began explaining things to his disciples. And he tells them, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. We are to be people who listen carefully, who obey obediently, who let our light shine because you are the light of the world as evidence of true, genuine faith and know that God will cause his kingdom to flourish and blossom beyond what you could ever see. Let's bow together in prayer. God in heaven, we give you thanks for your word is living and active and powerful. And we give you thanks because you are a good and gracious God. And it is because of your patience with us that you desire that all would come to repentance and faith. We pray, God, that you would save anyone here who does not know you, that they might come to a saving and genuine knowledge of what it is, of what your Son has done for them, of the greatness of their sin, and of your command to all that they believe and place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, that you would give them forgiveness that you would draw them to yourself and grant to them eternal life, life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen.